Hollywood loves to produce blockbuster disaster movies. And they have volcanoes, earthquakes, asteroids hitting the earth or coming toward the earth, tornadoes, tsunamis, and even fires. And uh, they even have uh, a, a series of, of television disaster programs, uh, Shark Maggetto. I uh, didn't, didn't know that. Uh, I, I came home one time in England, and uh, Mr. Jamie Meekin, it was a Saturday night, and he said, uh, you've got to watch this. This is the worst film that's ever been made. It's about sharks invading New York City somehow, I guess, a tsunami or global warming or something happened. And, you know, when you watch those disaster movies, there's always the expendable actor. You know this guy is going to be eaten by the monster or the shark. You know it's going to happen, and sure enough, he was on top of a taxi cab and fell off, and the shark got him. Um, but but that's not as bad as the one where they're picked up by a tornado, these, these sharks, and uh, they're hitting planes, uh, it, you know, 747, and here's a shark coming through the windshield. Um, now, I have to say, I haven't ever watched any of those all the way through. I've seen about five minutes of one and and maybe a minute or two of another, but uh, Hollywood loves disaster films. But, you know, the day is coming when virtually all these disasters, minus the sharks, uh, will strike the earth. And it's not going to be entertaining, and it's not going to be humorous at that time. We can laugh about these things now, but the time is coming when these things will happen not on film or projected onto a screen or a computer screen, but they're going to happen in real life. Volcanoes, asteroids, this sort of thing. Not in the span of a thousand years, but in a single year, these things are going to strike the earth. And that's a little bit of what this day is about, a great deal of what this day is about. This day of trumpets, of course, is multifaceted. Certainly, we rejoice at the last trumpet when we'll be changed into spirit life. Those who are, who have God's spirit, those who are faithful, those who are being led by God's spirit. Uh, we look forward to that day because we will be transformed from this physical flesh to spirit life. And we, you know, that's kind of hard to understand, especially young people, I think. Young people look to the physical flesh and even more so as we get older. We recognize we're made of physical flesh, and we, we see the end coming because we have the aches and the pains and everything. But a young person, a teenager, wants to get married, wants to experience the things that mom and dad have and others, and they don't always uh, fully appreciate the fact that, yes, we are physical, and this physical flesh does have a downside to it. Uh, when you're 16 or 18 or 20 or 25, uh, for me, on up to about very close to age 40, you, you could still run pretty good. And uh, it was a wonderful thing to be able to, to do those things. But as we get older, we realize that uh, this life is, is not all it's cracked up to be. It, it's fun, it's enjoyable, but there does come an end to it all, and it's usually not a very pleasant end uh, when it comes to that time. But this day of trumpets is more is about more than the last trumpet. It's called the Feast of Trumpets because it is plural. It's talking about more than one trumpet. It's a time of awesome, fearful sights, a day of warfare, dark clouds, and gloominess. So this afternoon, I'm going to point out how shallow man's understanding is of this particular day. Most people don't even know it exists. Most people are going about their business all over Charlotte. Uh, they may have heard of it. It may uh, be seen on a counter as Rosh Hashanah, whatever that is, some, some Jewish thing. And, and then if you were going down uh, Sardis Road toward where we used to meet for services, you'd go through a, a Jewish community, and they'll probably be going to synagogue today. But what do they know about this day? And what do those who profess to believe in the Bible, what do they know about this day? Well, we're going to look a little bit at that more from the Jewish perspective than the uh, what we might call the Christian perspective because the, from the Christian point of view, there's very little that is known of this day. But we're going to look at that 
And then we're going to examine the reality of what this day portends for mankind. Let's first notice how Jewish practices miss the mark when it comes to the meaning of this day. And they miss the mark to a great degree because they reject the New Testament. They reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you grow up in that particular background, that's what you're going to normally believe. And uh, we're a product of our upbringing, as Mr. Uh, Brown uh, brought out in the sermonette. Uh, we are a product of, of two people, and the not just two people, but the atmosphere that we grew up in and the beliefs that they, they held. But in the Living Education Focus Unit on Trumpets, uh, Mr. McNair quotes from The Jewish Holidays, a guiding commentary by Michael Strasfeld. Now, I think it's important that we understand these things because we see people from time to time, not very many, but every once in a while we will have someone who will leave the church and go into some sort of a messianic Jewish organization. And with the breakup of Worldwide, we had a number of people that went that direction. But every once in a while, we hear of somebody who's sitting amongst us, not necessarily this particular congregation, but I know of, of another congregation I'm very familiar with where uh, at least one or two people have uh, tended to go in that direction because they think that they have to do things Jewish. And we need to understand that Judaism is not the religion that Jesus practiced. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you find that he's constantly at odds with the Jewish leaders. In Matthew, the 23rd chapter, he condemns them for their, uh, their, their uh, hypocrisy over and over again and points out how they did the outward show of things, but it was not in their heart to obey God. And we need to understand that, that this is the very things that Christ condemned them for, all of the hours show of religion, is what people go into when they go into Messianic Judaism, which is a broad general uh, category of, of churches, many of them independent. And they have, I, I've met some where they wear a black hat and black robe and, and uh, take on that trapping of Judaism. Others have... A, uh, you know, uh, they, they wear tassels on their, their shirts. In fact, some of those like that. But it varies a great deal uh, how they present themselves. But they definitely, I think most of them, keep the holidays or holy days as they would see them. For example, Passover, not realizing that there's even a bit of paganism in Passover. I had the opportunity, my wife and I did, of going to a Passover Seder because they keep it two nights. They keep it on the 15th and the 16th. We keep Passover on the 14th, night to be observed on the 15th. But there's that next night, and we had the opportunity to go. And I noticed that they had a, a platter there, and they had what is called a burnt egg. And, and this is standard. I've got a little brochure of, of uh, the Passover Seder that they, they observe. And uh, so it wasn't just this one place. It was It's very broad. That's what they do. They have what's called a burnt egg. And I, I went up to the, uh, the leader there afterward, and I, I asked him, I said, uh, wh where's this burnt egg come from? I don't read that in the Scripture. And he said, ah, the egg, a symbol of life. And I thought, you keep Easter. Uh, I didn't say that. I was not going to be disrespectful. Uh, but this is where, you know, wh where does it come from? It has nothing to do with Scripture whatsoever. Now, Mr. McNair, in this uh, Living Education Focus Unit on Trumpets, quoted from uh, this Mr. Uh, Strasfeld as writing, quote, Whatever the original origin of these festivals, a subject of much debate among scholars, they are today a celebration of the beginning of the new year. Now, we probably are familiar with that, that it's the new year among Jews. Strasfeld goes on to say, in fact, the Bible's silence about the fall new, uh, new year and its celebration is hardly accidental. The Bible's silence about it? Celebrations of this festival were so fraught with pagan associations that the rather puritanical biblical authors probably opposed the festival altogether. 
Now he introduces pagan um, ideas or uh, pagan uh, associations. He says, only in the Talmud does Rosh Hashanah emerge as a major Jewish festival. Then he notes when it comes, uh, comes from, where it comes from, quote, it's likely that especially the first diaspora Jews, those of Babylonia, those who were taken captive into Babylon, did much to support the acceptance of this festival and gave it a legacy that is in many ways reminiscent of the ancient Babylonian New Year. You know, the Bible does not describe this festival as a new year. And we know that there are, there's the, uh, the, the year, the, the sacred year that begins in the spring of the year where he says this will be the first uh, day of the first month or this will be the first month for you. And then we have the, what they call the, uh, whatever that other year is, uh, uh, what is that? The, well, civil year, but there's another term. We, uh, when we, we use it for uh, tax purposes and things. People, anyway, whatever that is. Uh, what's that? Fiscal year. Fiscal, thank you. The fiscal year. So we have kind of generally looked at that as being the fiscal year for, for them. And there's some reason that one might say that that works very well because it's built around the feasts and so forth. But nevertheless... Uh, they see it as the new year, but this author says that they obviously picked up many things along the way from Babylon and their New Year celebration. He goes on to say, while it is clear from Leviticus 23, 23, that this was a festival day in the Bible, the nature of the festival is unclear. And that is uh, very clear if you read anything uh, from from the Jewish perspective. They they do have certain ideas about this festival, but I, I read an article one time came from the Asheville uh, Citizen Times or whatever it is, the newspaper up in Asheville here in North Carolina. I used to have it. I might have it someplace. But basically it's saying there's a, the sound of the trumpet and it's kind of a mournful sound and different things and it's a time of examination and so forth. But it was not very concrete when it came to explaining what it's all about. I would hope that all of us could give a very simple explanation. We don't have to go into great detail, but a simple explanation of what this is about. From uh, Judaism 101, an online source, it talks about the days of awe. And the days of awe are the 10-day period from trumpets to uh, Yom Kippur. And uh, it says that there are days of repentance. This is a time for serious introspection, a time to consider the sins of the previous year and repent before Yom Kippur. Now, that sounds good on the surface. What's wrong with that? Well, of course, God gives us the spring holy days, which tell us who it is that pays the penalty for our sins, and then gives us the seven days of unleavened bread to analyze and examine ourselves. And, of course, we must repent daily, and we must examine ourselves on a regular basis. But... Their approach toward uh, repentance and, and examining themselves comes in the time between trumpets and atonement. One of the ongoing themes of the days of awe is the concept that God has books that he writes our names in, write, writing down who will live and who will die, who will have a good life and who will have a bad life for the next year. These books are written in on Rosh Hashanah. But our actions during the days of awe, during that 10-day period between now and, and the Day of Atonement, can alter God's decree. The actions that change the decree are repentance, prayer, good deeds, usually charity. Uh, these books are sealed on Yom Kippur. This concept of writing in books is the source of the common greeting during this time, quote, may you be inscribed and sealed for a good year you begin to see that some of this is maybe not quite so uh, biblical as one might think. There are certain biblical concepts of repentance and so forth, but it, uh, it's certainly not uh, something that the Bible indicates this is the meaning of it. Now, returning to the Living Education Unit, 
There are a number of food customs associated with Rosh Hashanah, the most prevalent being the dipping of apples in honey as an expression of a desire for a sweet year. Now we begin to think of the way that the world celebrates things. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates that one way or another. In fact, if we look at the meaning of this day, it's not going to be a sweet time. It's going to be a very difficult time between trumpets and atonement. Apples or other foods are dipped in honey at the beginning of the meal meals on Rosh Hashanah, these days of awe. The phrase, quote, may it be your will to renew us for a year that is good and sweet is recited. Now, there are other foods that are eaten during that time, uh, which all express uh, a good year coming up. For example, eating the head of a fish, since we'd rather be a head than a tail. Okay, I can understand that, I suppose. Adversely, we do not eat nuts. This is interesting because the Hebrew letters of the word for nuts, and this is translated into our alphabet here, E-G-O. Z or Z, depending on where you are, have a numerical equivalent to the Hebrew word for sin. So we can't eat nuts during this time because the Hebrew word for sin has the same uh, consonants as as do the um, or the same letters, not just consonants, but the same letters uh, as the word for sin. Uh, Strasfeld also points out another custom. On Rosh Hashanah, after the first day, it's customary to go to a flowing body of water and symbolically cast away our sins by throwing breadcrumbs into the water. And they have certain verses on that. And they, uh, the, ver- the, the verse, um, well, let's just turn to it. Micah, the seventh chapter. And this is where they... It's a scripture that they use to justify this. Micah, the seventh chapter, and we'll begin in verse 8. It says here, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation... Of the Lord, because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me forth to light and I will see righteous, see his righteousness. This doesn't sound right. Where am I going here? Do I have the right verse? Um, okay. Let me see. Check this out in my notes. Okay. Yeah, it's 719. I'm sorry. It's uh, Micah 7, verse 19. Or actually, uh, we could begin in verse 18. It says, Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Verse 19, He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham. So they take this verse and then create a ceremony around it where they take breadcrumbs as though that's their sins and throw them into a moving body of water. Well, that seems like a very nice thing to do, but even the uh, number of rabbis, rabbis, rabbinic scholars, are afraid the symbolism will be taken too literally and people will believe they can rid themselves of sin through this ceremony rather than through the arduous process of repentance. Well, God provides a different way. Uh, Obviously, repentance is part of it, but God provides another way that our sins are removed, and it's nothing that we can do of and by ourselves. It takes the blood of Jesus Christ, paying the penalty for our sins. It is interesting they use bread at this time, whereas in an earlier celebration of unleavened bread, that pictures repentance, that pictures self-examination, and so forth. 
So we begin to see that there's a lot of accoutrements that are added to the celebration of this day, and yet they miss the mark entirely. Now, we, we don't want to stand back and say, okay, well, they're, they're a bunch of you know, dummy people. Why don't they figure it out? That's, without understanding Christ, their eyes are blinded. And without understanding the New Testament, even though the, the Old Testament really gives the explanation in a number of ways, without the New Testament, they're not going to see it. And yet those who have the New Testament and reject the Old Testament don't get it either because they don't keep these days as a general statement. So let's compare man's understanding of this day with what the Scriptures reveal to us. And we're going to go over to the book of Revelation, and we will begin actually in Revelation, the first chapter, because I want to give a little bit of context to this even though we've done this before at times, and I'm going to go over this relatively quickly. But the book of Revelation is about this day. Notice in verse 10 it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Interesting that it mentions a trumpet there in connection with the Lord's day. Now, the scholars... uh, Protestant and Catholic scholars say that the Lord's Day is Sunday, that there's a Sabbath, which is the old Jewish day, and the Lord's Day is uh, Sunday. But there's not a scripture any place that indicates that the Lord's Day is Sunday. In fact, if you go back to Mark, the second chapter, you'll find that when it speaks of the day that Jesus is the Lord of, it's speaking of the Sabbath. Notice Mark 2 and verse 28, therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Not Lord of the first day of the week, but Lord of the Sabbath. And this is also stated in Matthew, the 12th chapter, verse 8. Matthew 12, verse 8, I'm not going to turn there, uh, nor will I turn to Luke 6, uh, verse 5, but it shows the same thing. So three places it speaks of the Sabbath as being the day that Jesus is the Lord of. Nowhere does it say anything about Sunday. But here in the book of Revelation, the whole book in reality, with a number of chapters adding little bits and pieces to it, uh, is about the day of the Lord. So it begins in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, so it came from God, God the Father, came to Jesus Christ to show his servants. So there are three elements here, God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the servants. And it says he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So it comes to John, who is left to then uh, write these things down. He was to bear witness to the word of God, verse 2. That's the first thing, bear witness to the word of God. And to the testimony of Jesus Christ, which in Revelation, the 19th chapter, it speaks of uh, uh, the the testimony of Jesus Christ, the spirit of prophecy, and to all things that he saw. And it says, blessed is he who reads reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, what is the first thing that John does? This is the preamble, you might say, of verses 1 to 3. And so what does John immediately do with the commission that's given to him? It says, John, verse 4, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, it continues through this first chapter and identifies those churches that are in Asia in verse 11, which lists them by name. And then you have one like the Son of Man who's clothed with a garment down to his feet, verse 13, and girded with a chest and uh, a golden uh, band. And it describes him, and he is seen walking in the midst of seven candlesticks. And when we read down in verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the, seven, are the angels of the seven churches, or the messengers, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, what we find as we move forward here is an explanation, of a more thorough explanation of God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the servants. 
who is this message that is written to here in uh, the book of Revelation? Well, the servants that mentions in verse 1 are identified in reality by the seven churches. And so Revelation 2 and 3 describe the seven eras, the seven stages through which the church would pass over a period of time. There are scholars who, who look at these two chapters and they say that, that they want to fit it into the Catholic Protestant tradition, but they can't make it fit. But when you look at the true church, the true church of God, you see in a broad general sense that these are stages that the church is going through. And we come up to this time at the very end when the church is lukewarm. Now, uh, that, that opens up a lot of questions. Uh, is the church merely the living church of God? Well, if it is, then we better wake up because some of us are going to be lukewarm. In fact, the dominant attitude is lukewarm. If it is the broader church of God, and I don't mean broader Protestant world, but I mean the broader church of God, those who understand the things that we do for the most part, then we, we certainly hope that we are Philadelphian in spirit because Philadelphia is described there in the third chapter as well as the Laodicea in the last era. And I don't think that most of us want to be a part of what is called Laodicea. Uh, but that is, it is what it is. And uh, we have an opportunity, if we are Laodicean, to repent, but we, we certainly had better do so. As uh, brought out, there are many distractions, many things that get us excited, And as uh, Mr. McNair was describing the sermon. But what is it that really should excite us? What is it that we should be looking forward to? What is it that Mr. Smith was talking about in his sermon on the Sabbath? Not yesterday, by the way, but on the Sabbath. I don't know if anybody caught that. He said uh, yesterday. I, I don't. I didn't go to church yesterday, but anyway, the day before. Uh, but Mr. Smith was talking about that throwing over the wall. When in reality, he's saying, "What? What is beyond this feast of trumpets? That is where our heart really should be." That's what we should hope for more than anything else. And yet, being physical, being human, it is our nature to get excited about, well, let's say the Dallas Cowboys. I'm not, uh, I'm not a Cowboy fan either. But uh, <laughs> I, I root against them, and then I root against uh, you know, the Patriots, and root against... Uh, I, I root against more than I root for. <laughs> When I see somebody overly excited about something, it's just, I, it's just my nature. It has to be that way. I, I'm a contrarian that way. I'm sorry. Panthers. Oh, yeah. Okay, got to root against them, too. Uh, do we have any Panther fans here, by the way? Oh, we do have some Panther fans. You know, I notice most of them are younger. As we get older, we kind of put these things... Well, not everybody. I know a lot of... How old are you now, Mr. McNair? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, we all have teams we kind of root for somehow. But anyway, uh, we see here that these seven churches, and we have literature on the subject, God's Church Through the, Church Through the Ages. You can look that up, uh, that particular resource. But it, it really shows how... God's church would have these various problems down through the ages. And when we came into the 20th century, we saw a, a door open up for the preaching of the gospel that had never been opened before. Radio, television, uh, the Internet, uh, all these things began to be opened up. And in the Philadelphia era, it says that uh, I've set before you an open door and no man can shut it. And he, he's the one that shuts and no man opens and opens and no man shuts. So God shows that there is an open door and that the Philadelphia era would be an evangelistic type of a, 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 a congregation or, or group of people, an era where there would be great evangelism. And there was a time when we had 8 million, over 8 million, something like 8.4 million Plain Truth magazines going out all over the world. And now... People can watch it, you know, on television or on the Internet. Uh, we're not nearly as, uh, as big as we once were. Uh, when you look at the world today, 
people just don't get very excited about the truth. It's frustrating because we know that there are people out there who, who recognize this as right, but they won't step out and do what they ought to do, which is to repent. They're just more interested in staying and keeping everybody happy. Family, friends, work associates, coworkers, and it's just easier to stay where they are rather than break out of that and do what really they ought to do. That's the era in which we're living. But what we find here is in Revelation 2 and 3, it defines who the servants of God are. Revelation 4 then describes God's throne. God sitting on his throne, and there are 24 elders, and there are four uh, living beasts or creatures, and so forth. It describes that, so it shows who the message comes from, which is God the Father. And then we see that there's this book, this scroll, with seven seals on it. It's introduced there, and in chapter 5, it says that, you know, who, who's willing, who is able to open it, and it shows that it is Jesus Christ. He is the one, the Lamb of God that is able to open up the seals of this book. So we have the servants of God defined in chapters 2 and 3, God the Father from which the message comes. In chapter 4, chapter 5, who it is that opens the meaning can open up these seals. And then in chapter 6, we find that six of the seven seals are opened. So in very... Fast order, they're opened up. We have the four horsemen, as they're often referred to. We have the uh, the martyrdom of saints, an end-time martyrdom of saints. And that's coming, and that will happen. So, you know, it, it's one of those things that if you, if you accept the mark of the beast, then you're going to have other things happen to you. Uh, but if you obey God, things can happen as well. But it's a matter, are we going to do what is right and good because we see beyond this day what is going to take place beyond this day? We recognize that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. We're looking for a city whose maker is not, uh, a city is not made with hands, as it speaks there in the book of uh, Hebrews, the 11th chapter. So the 6th chapter describes these six seals being opened up. And then in verse 17, it says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The day of his wrath, the day of the Lamb's wrath, the day of God's wrath is come. Now in the seventh chapter, it shows that before that happens, there are certain people that have to be sealed for protection. And we get into the 144,000 and the great innumerable multitude, and that gets... Uh, a lot of, uh, of uh, interest by a lot of people who are the 144,000 and everything. We'll set that aside for right now. Uh, I think there are some things that God has yet to reveal to us. But after that, we've come to chapter 8. And it says, when he opened the seventh seal, so the seventh seal, the last seal on this scroll, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense that, it should, that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. It's describing the, the throne of God. It's actually describing the, the temple or the, the tabernacle uh, analogy we, we could use here. Remember that you go into the holy place and then you have this, this uh, altar of incense that you can go in before God. And all of the, the incense uh, portrayed the prayers of the saints ascending up before God. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And then we have in relatively fast order this description of the sounding of these seven trumpets. Uh, the first one sounds in verse 7. This is the 8th chapter of Revelation, verse 7. And hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So it's coming a time of global warming 
different from the global warming that uh, the world is describing to us. This is coming a time when something is going to happen. Now, this is after the tribulation because the tribulation is two and a half years before this. Uh, It's it's going to take place. All those uh, six seals have already taken place. But this is the seventh, and this is, is, we'll see how long it's going to be. But it says that a third of the trees are burned up and all green grass. Now, this may be regionally, something that happens on a regional basis. Uh, it's hard to say because it speaks of thirds. Then, verse 8, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So, obviously, this would be somewhat regionally. Where would this be? Well, we know that a third of all shipping goes through that uh, the South China Sea over there in Malaysia and, and south of, uh, of uh, uh, the southern part of that sea on into uh, you know, the, the, the area of Malaysia and Singapore and Borneo and all those areas, where we know that there are very large volcanoes, explosive-type volcanoes. You know, one super volcano is uh, Kilauea in Hawaii. It's super because of the size and how often it erupts and everything, but it is not an explosive type. It just kind of oozes magma all over the place and, and uh, consumes trees and forests and houses and highways and whatever gets in its way. But it does it very slowly. You could outwalk it, I suppose. But when you go into another part of the world, you get down around New Zealand and uh, into Indonesia and some of those places, they've got these super volcanoes that when they explode, they can do some serious damage. And there was a time when this would have seemed so outlandish it couldn't possibly happen, it couldn't, couldn't be, that you would have uh, a, a, an explosion uh, that would uh, uh, destroy a third of the ships. But when you look at super volcanoes, we now know that Yellowstone, for example, is a supervolcano. And they know that if it were to explode, based on the size of it and everything, uh, a crater being about 40 by 60 miles, something like that, uh, it'd be the caldera of it, it's not the cone like we normally think of, but the part that has exploded, that it would do so much damage that it would destroy the United States and Canada as we know it. Now, there's no indication that that's going to happen because this one describes something that's around an ocean and obviously a place where a lot of shipping takes place. And it would seem, speculation, and, and he's been understood that way, that it's going to be over there in South Asia uh, probably taking place. But a third of the ships are going to be destroyed. And then in verse 10, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Now, we call it a shooting star. Uh, obviously, if it were a real star, it, it not only would hit the earth, it would just burn us up instantaneously if it got that close. But something like an asteroid or a meteor, a very large one. We know from past history that uh, a very large meteor hit down around the Yucatan Peninsula and the, the Gulf of Mexico there, And it's believed that that's what uh, killed off all the dinosaurs. Whether that happened or not, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows, but they theorize that. And it's not necessarily a wild speculation. There's something that killed off the dinosaurs. And when they look at that, they know that there was a very large um, asteroid uh, that hit in that particular region. And they have reasons for, for believing that and very good scientific reasons. And uh, apparently uh, they they believe that that was the time that that happened. So this one falls on a part of the world where you have a lot of water, a lot of water supply. Is that talking about the Himalayas where, you know, the great rivers of India and China come from and many other nations as well? Is it talking about the Great Lakes where there's a tremendous amount of water? I don't know where a third of the... The waters would be on this earth. I've, I've tried to find that out, never been able to figure that out. 
but someplace where a third of the waters are are going to be affected by this what would appear to be some sort of an asteroid that hits the earth and it may break up and hit in more than one place on this earth we don't know uh, how that'll be but then the fourth angel sounds of verse 12 and a third of the sun was struck a third of the moon and a third of the stars so the third of them were darkened uh, perhaps in northern or southern hemisphere from all these other things that are happening it would easily close off the uh, the sunlight for a period of time and i looked and i heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice woe 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 to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound and so then the fifth angel sounds and you find this uh, army that comes out of the, the bottomless pit so to speak comes out of uh, whatever that means, nowhere, whatever, and and they uh, go out to make war. And then you have in verse 13 the sixth angel sounding and this massive counterattack from the east, 200 million man army. doesn't mean they're all in the front line. You have to have support for, for those and everything, but a 200 million man army. And the only place that it could come from would be from the east because that's where you have such a large population of people. India, China, uh, Indonesia, uh, all these places over there. That's the only place it could be. And as we, we recognize that they come across the Euphrates in verse 14, so they're coming from the east. That's where they're coming from. And it describes a 200 million man army. This is going to be a situation where it is all out war, where there's going to be enough of a uh, uh, push against them that they feel that they've got to throw everything they have at it. You know, I, I've been doing a little bit of reading, and I watched this program on television uh, about the atomic age uh, unclassified. And it's very interesting because it matches what I read on a book on uh, uh, Eisenhower that General Curtis LeMay, of, uh, who was Secretary of the Air Force uh, during the latter part of the Eisenhower uh, administration, had come up with a plan of what happens when war, uh, if we were, got into a war with Russia or the Soviet Union. And both these sources say the same thing, that the plan, which is the most detailed war plan that anybody ever knows of, showing which cities and all the different things, the plan was that Eisenhower felt that you could never have a limited nuclear exchange, that as soon as the first one goes off, then all you know what is going to break loose. And so the plan was that the United States would throw virtually everything it had at the Soviet Union, at Communist China, and Eastern Europe, even killing many innocent people, uh, many people that might be considered our friends. But the point was that once it started, it was all or nothing. It was either throw everything at them or they throw everything at us and we... I don't think they've ever declassified that, but you have to believe that they would have been thinking in the same way. And we say, well, you know, that's so far-fetched. But interesting, and again, I've seen this from more than one source now, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the Soviet Union sent a couple submarines down to that particular area to uh, deal with the blockade, however they were going to. I don't know what their, their plan was, but anyway, they sent them down there. And what we now know is something we didn't know then, and they had nuclear-tipped uh, torpedoes on those submarines. They had three people to make decisions whether to use them. The regular captain, and then they had two other people, one of them a very specialized individual, uh, that, that would uh, make that determination, they all three would have to agree before using them. The United States had a line across the northern Atlantic to detect any, nuke, any uh, Soviet submarines. But they got through that. They got past that undetected. But when they got off the coast of, uh, what, 
I guess, North, South Carolina, Florida, and that general area, there was another line, and they were detected. And so what the United States did, it dropped depth charges on the submarine very similar to um, uh, something like a, a grenade. In other words, it wasn't intended to destroy the uh, submarine. It was intended to say, come up. Well, of course, they thought they were under attack. And apparently two of the three individuals were ready to launch one of those torpedoes into the American fleet. It came that close. And the third one did not uh, give consent. And they did come up. But that's how close it came, because had they launched a nuclear weapon at the American fleet, the United States would have retaliated with everything we have, every ICBM, uh, every uh, B-52 bomber, which is in the air, had them in the air at all times. That's how close we came to the end of the world as we know it. Now, a similar crisis is going to come. I say similar. The, the circumstances will be different. But something is going to bring these two powers coming together and fighting against one another. And when we look at the, the day of the Lord, we see it's a time of warfare. It's a time of all kinds of troubles, as we've already seen here. We've looked at six of the seven trumpets. But let's, let's go back to um, the Old Testament here, and let's read a little bit about this day of the Lord. Isaiah, the 34th chapter. Isaiah 34. And let's look how long this period of blowing of trumpets lasts. In Isaiah 34 and verse 1, it says, Come near, you nations, to hear, and heed, you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. Uh, he has given them over to the slaughter. And then in verse 8 it says, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. It says it's the day of the Lord, and then it introduces the idea it is the year of recompense. We can see this in the 63rd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 63 and verse 4. It says here, For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And then back a page in six, chapter 61, chapter 61, in verse 2, it says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, we could take that day as kind of a figurative sense, but the Bible uh, often uses a day for a year. You find that principle, for example, in Ezekiel, the fourth chapter, Ezekiel 4 and verse 6. Here he describes Ezekiel, or he's told to lay on his side uh, for a certain number of days. And then in verse 6 it says, And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have laid on you a day for each year. So he was lay on his side for 40 days, symbolizing 40 years. And uh, there was a period of 390 days uh, as well, a day for a year. You could go back to Numbers, the 14th chapter, and verse 34. I won't turn there uh, for lack of time, but Numbers 14:34 described, again, the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 uh, years because they had spied out the land for 40 days and they were going to be punished a day for a year at that time. So how long does this time of blowing of trumpets last? It lasts a one-year period. Now, that one year will be mankind's worst nightmare. It's not going to be a time of, hey, have a good, you know, sweet uh, 10 days here, sweet time in the future. It's going to be a time of, of just disaster. Notice Amos, the fifth chapter. 
there are, are so many scriptures that we could turn to about the day of the Lord, but let's just notice a few. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Amos 5 and verse 18. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Woe to you who desire it. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Well, when you have volcanoes, when you have asteroids striking the earth, uh, it's going to throw a lot of stuff up in the sky. It's going to be darkness, not just in a figurative sense, but in a literal sense. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? It's going to be a time when people are just going to be terrified of what's happening. I've, I've thought about uh, this, that, you know, when, when Moses went up to the Mount, Mount Sinai, when you read there in the book of Hebrews, his knees smote one against another. He knew what was going on, but he was terrified. Can you imagine, let's say that, you are a part of being in a place of, uh, of safety at that time. With all these things happening on the earth and earthquakes and asteroids and different things, some of which we may kind of see off in the distance or see coming or maybe we won't even see at all. But when these things happen and the earth shakes, it's going to be a terrifying time, even for the people of God. Uh, that's my speculation, okay? I don't know that absolutely, but I would think so if Moses was terrified when God came down on Mount Sinai. Why would we think that all these things could happen around the world? Uh, maybe it's not that close to us, but there will be things happening close enough that we'll be aware of some things and maybe much more aware of them than we realize. And uh, it's going to be a terrifying time. Notice Zephaniah. Zephaniah, the first chapter. And verse 14, another one of these minor prophets that some people never read. I don't think that they're of any importance, but it talks about the day of the Lord again. And it's so consistent. In Zephaniah 1, verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress. A day of devastation and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. The second chapter here. Verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. You know, some of the people who have heard the message... Uh, and they go through the Great Tribulation, a two-and-a-half-year period of all the things that happened there. And they come to repentance. Some of them may be hidden or protected during that time. We hope that they will be. I, I've mentioned this before, but I, I so often think of our neighbors. And uh, we, we just love our neighbors. We loved our neighbors when we lived in Canada, even though some of them were Muslim. Uh, they were, you know, good neighbors to us. Uh, shared things and and you know do we do we love people or do we just see them all as you know the uh, the west coast or the east coast i guess i can put it that way uh, who are fighting against us and uh, everything that is right and just uh they're they're out here you know trying to overthrow everything fight against god well even there we have to understand this is the, this is the world view that they have they, they probably think this is the right thing. So many young people grow up without any proper biblical understanding. And so they, they go off to university and they have these university professors that pump them, their minds full of all kinds of foolishness. It'd be easy to be mad at the professors, which I guess there's a righteous indignation. 
But I think that Mr. Brown brought it out very well. You know, God loves those people that we can't stand. (laughs) He loves them. He cares for them. He's going to deal with them as a rebellious child. But in the end, in the end, even the most wretched person out there, uh, if he comes to repentance, is going to be very lovable in the end. Uh, Even for those of us who are human. Uh, it shows here that the day of the Lord, uh, the Lord's anger is coming, and there will be those who are spared from it, or at least the hope of that. Otherwise, why would he say that? Let's go to Joel, the first chapter. Joel 1, and uh, verse 18, or verse, yeah, verse 14, I'm sorry. Joel 1, verse 14. Now, this is talking about a time of of, uh, invasion upon Israel at that time. But there's duality to it all. And very clearly, it talks about more than just the local circumstances of that time. In verse 14, it says, Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord... Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. And then chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come great and strong the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them. So it's talking about the local events of that time, of the very near future, but it's also focusing on a time way off in the future. And when you read the whole of Joel, you begin to see that. Chapter uh, 2, verse 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. So it's talking about a time of of terrible trouble that people ought to be crying out to God for. Now, why is God so angry with mankind? Well, in Sermonette, Isaiah, the second chapter, you can read verses 12 to 21. And it is the arrogance, the pride of man. In the 13th chapter of Isaiah, and uh, beginning in verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Talks about, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he and will he will destroy its sinners from it. You can read the whole of that, Isaiah thirteen six to uh, to thirteen. It shows that God is going to humble mankind because of our arrogance. When you when you think about people and the books that they write and the things that they say and the way that they ridicule God and everybody, everything that, uh, that, that God stands for, God's going to have to humble these people. Those that think that we just got here somehow by chance. God is going to have to humble those individuals. And I say those individuals, I think that in the day of the Lord, I think every human being that's alive, whether God's people or not, it's going to be a time of humbling. It's going to be a time of of recognition of the great power of God as opposed to our puny little power that we have here on earth. Let's notice the seventh trumpet in uh, Revelation, Revelation 1. I'm sorry, Revelation 11. Revelation, the 11th chapter. And verse 15, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I find it interesting here that it says here that when the seventh angel sounds, that there are going to be loud voices in heaven. And when you put this together with other scriptures, it becomes really quite interesting if you go back to the very beginning. Let's, let's go back to Leviticus 23 for a moment. 
We haven't read that today, I don't think. Leviticus 23, where the original command was given here in verse 23. It's 23, 23, easy to remember. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. He's saying that they were to have a memorial of blowing of trumpets. The word trumpet is an interesting word in the Hebrew. The New Bible Commentary Revised, uh, where they have Hebrew experts as opposed to me, I'd rather quote them than, than me, uh, try to explain the meaning of it, says the word trumpet does not occur in Hebrew. This is commenting on this, this verse. The word teruah may denote either shouting of people or trumpet blast. Perhaps both were included. Now, in Revelation, as we just read, it talks about shouting of people. Let's notice over in Matthew, the 24th chapter, Matthew 24, And in verse 29, it speaks of the tribulation, after the tribulation of those days, the fifth seal, you might say, and the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That's the sixth seal. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So we see here in the book of Revelation, it speaks of shout at the sound of the seventh trumpet. Here we see the blowing of a great trumpet at the sound of the, uh, or at the time of the seven trumpet sounding. Then we go to, to uh, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, because it's interesting that in the New Testament, the blowing of trumpets uh, is so closely associated with the day of the Lord, the time of Christ's coming, the time of the resurrection. So he begins here in chapter 4, verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so uh, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And then verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. This isn't the... Uh, uh, What's that word? They, they, they talk about, um, uh, yeah, everybody knows it, uh, rapture. It's not the rapture. The dead in Christ rise first. They've been dead all this time. They're resurrected. And then it says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. He's talking about death not being the end of all things, and we shouldn't. You know, we shouldn't sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, when we go over to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, it talks about the same things, but it adds another element to it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not all be dead, but we shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Isn't it interesting that all these scriptures talking about a certain trumpet blast is when the, the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive will be caught up together with them. And so we see harmony between Matthew between Thessalonians, between the letter to the Corinthians, between Revelation, uh, written by, what, three different people. 
And this one tells us it's at the last trumpet. So we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, plural. And when we go over to Revelation, we see that the seventh trumpet is not just when the resurrection takes place, but there will be seven final plagues, seven last plagues. It will be poured out in rapid succession. You can read those in the 15th, 16th chapters of, of the book of Revelation. I don't have time for those today. But that makes up the complete, completeness of God's wrath, the culmination of God's wrath. We have the six trumpets, the plagues that take place, the seventh, when Christ returns, we are resurrected, changed. And then there are the seven last plagues that must be poured out. Our booklet on the subject of Revelation Unveiled goes into this part of it in greater detail, the part of Revelation. I'd like to read a little bit from Psalm 47 in conclusion. Psalm 47. Um, it's, it's a messianic psalm in that sense. I don't know if anybody else, uh, whether the commentators think of it that way, but it clearly is when you read it. Psalm 47. Because this day is a time of, of rejoicing for the people of God. It's a time of, of terror. It's a time of, of darkness and everything for the world. But it's also a time of great rejoicing for the people of God. And so it says in verse 1, Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. So shouting to God for a, with a voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. That's what he's going to be, is king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. This is talking about Christ coming back, setting up his kingdom. This is talking about the day of the Lord in that context. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with a sound of a trumpet. Here we go again, a shout and a sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God stirs up his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields, or the shields of office of the earth, belong to God. He is greatly to be exalted. This is what the Feast of Trumpets is all about.